Thank you very much, Daniel. And I'd also like to thank uh, Leila Ulrich, who uh, couldn't be here today, but um, who invited us to, to speak here, and uh, we're very grateful for that. I'd like to submit from the outset of this talk that the case of Saif al-Islam Gaddafi is not just about one man widely reviled, or a question of debating guilt or innocence, a role best left to unbiased, dispassionate judges. I wish to show how it connects in a vital way to the political predicament of Libya today and to the future of the Middle East and North Africa, Af African region, the MENA region, on one hand, and to the West and its ongoing turbulent relationship with that part of the world, on the other. Also, in parallel, how it ties intimately into the inner workings and failings of fledgling rule of law institutions such as the International Criminal Court and the Regional African Court of Human Rights and other more long-standing international bodies such as the United Nations and NATO. This one case lays bare a striking pattern of intersecting forces and farces, connecting the fate of one contentious figure and the fate of nations and institutions. I tell this story as a lone individual, a friend, a scholar, a justice advocate who found myself inexplicably caught up in this complex web with a unique relationship and role to play, and as an occasional thorn in the side of intransigent institutions, having pierced these almost impenetrable layers through a combination of special capabilities, conviction, and courage. I leave behind a tangible record critically chronicling where the different players have lived up to or failed to uphold their respective mandates, and in some cases problematically overstepped them, and in other cases miraculously risen above and beyond with enough consistently applied pressure on our part. We must first situate this story against that of the hasty UN Security Council Resolution 1973 authorizing the no-fly zone, and this was the uh, what authorized the NATO military intervention in Libya in March of 2011. It was, quote, the fastest humanitarian intervention in history. It took the international community three and a half weeks to intervene, according to uh, Democracy Now!, a panel uh, this, that was dis discussing this in uh, April of 2011. And to quote from an incisive piece in the London Review of Books in November 2011, called who said Gaddafi had to go, that the, quote, that the Arab League whose support for a no-fly zone was invoked by London, Paris, and Washington to claim Arab legitimation of NATO's intervention had a membership almost entirely confined to Western powers' client states never, was never mentioned, end quote. Information has since surfaced of how Amnesty International, for instance, spread rumors and fueled media disinformation, which was in turn used to justify the 2011 NATO campaign. Um, also, later teams of investigators determined there was no evidence of mercenaries, for instance. Uh, there were also exiled Libyan dissidents calling the international community to institute this no-fly zone and also to bring about regime change, claiming that, quote, thousands of people are dying. These and other unreliable testimony were used to authorize the intervention without any real evidence of military action uh, being warranted. UN staffers who were present at the time the resolution was rashly decided upon have confidential, confidentially told me the same. Significantly, 
It ignored the Libyan willingness to cooperate and their unheeded calls to the international community to come inspect these so-called atrocities com committed by the regime. Specifically, it ignored Gaddafi Sr. and Jr.'s concessions of recent years and overture to the West, recalling that the 2003 sanctions were dropped against Libya in exchange for their acceptance of the crippling market-based economic programs of the IMF and the World Bank, as well as willingly laying down their WMD and chemical we weapons program and opening their doors to outside inspections. Leaked telephone intercepts of a top US government official released belatedly by the Washington Times demonstrates that Saif al-Islam Gaddafi was in talks with the West and willing to cooperate well prior to the NATO campaign, which would come to be the greatest Western foreign policy blunder since the invasion of Iraq, as Obama himself admitted, despite saying he also didn't regret it. Most shocking, but now unsurprising, is that the NATO mission, while authorized, authorizes a humanitarian mission in supposed response to imminent massacres of civilians by regime forces was in fact planned as early as 2010. And the war games, dubbed Operation Southern Mistral, announced by France and the UK on the 2nd of November 2010, and planned for March 21st, 2011, never happened and have since been wiped from official sites online. Instead, they morphed into an actual military campaign, Odyssey Dawn, on the 19th of March 2011. This humanitarian mission itself caused tens of thousands of civilian casualties that have not been properly investigated to the state and for which there's been no justice, not to mention the most uh, severe refugee crisis in recent times, and not to mention causing arms and ammunition to fall into the hands of rebel groups and ISIS. This went hand in hand with the hasty and politically motivated ICC arrest warrants for regime officials for alleged crimes against humanity. And this was the first of its kind to emanate directly from the UN Security Council in the form of Resolution 1970 in late February 2011. To quote, to quote the Gulf News, quote, it took the presiding International Criminal Court Judge Sanji Monageng of Botswana a mere 30 minutes to conclude that there were, quote, reasonable grounds to issue arrest warrants for Colonel uh, Muammar Gaddafi, his son Saif al-Islam, and his chief of intelligence al Sanusi. As discussed earlier, however, there, was no there were no substantive grounds for issuing a warrant for Saif Gaddafi. Um, incidentally, he was in the text of the arrest warrant dubbed the, quote, de facto prime minister to presumably attribute greater responsibility in regime activities than he actually had, and also to likely preempt him from assuming positions of power after an impending regime overthrow. According to on-the-ground independent investigations by groups such as Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, there was no evidence these massacres or large-scale human rights violations took place, including accusations of mass rape and the use of mercenaries, as I mentioned. This highlights the trouble uh, with the presumption also of guilt and with the public vilification campaigns that ensued. Also. There is a very real issue I witnessed firsthand of the abusive process outside the courtroom, such as by the then ICC prosecutor Luis Moreno Ocampo, as well as attempts at character assassination by Chief International Legal Counsel for Libya, who also happened to be proponents of the interventions in Libya as well as Syria. As you can see, Saif Gaddafi, the reformer, once a friend of the West, would overnight become public enemy number one. 
And this witch hunt and scapegoating persisted in large part due to past the past regime's history of injustices and open wounds that were not redressed. So now to my role. You could say that I was either in the wrong place at the right time or the right place the wrong time, however you want to put it. Um, as a scholar and practitioner, uh, an international relations generalist and international human rights and Middle East specialist based at Oxford for nearly a decade now, and with over a decade of experience in the human rights and NGO world prior to that, and as one of Saif al-Islam's last remaining friends, not having known him for very long to begin with, only for a few months in late 2010, and having discussed issues of common interest with him, such as reform, and as you may have heard, he was responsible for many of the recent reforms in Libya, and I also urged him to uh, roll out a new constitution, which was not to be. I found myself in a unique position, uh, again, as one of the last trusted people in the West with whom Saif Gaddafi was in touch from Libya prior to and throughout the duration of the NATO campaign and prior to his capture, while many long-standing friends had flipped on him overnight as the tides turned against the Gaddafi regime. With the unique capability, conviction, and courage to take on a heavy and controversial load at a significant personal and professional cost, I might add, this was all for a higher purpose in line with my calling as part and parcel of my lifelong mission for harmonizing and strengthening rights enforcement mechanisms and doing my small part for lasting peace and justice in the Middle East and beyond. Thrust into a very complex web of entanglements that taught me so much and so quickly about the inner and outer workings and lack thereof of the international system and its twisted tentacles, <laughs> namely the politicization and instrumentalization of certain international organs from the UN Security Council to the ICC. So at the level of the ICC, I took it upon myself to ensure that there would be a fair ICC admissibility proceeding and the rest of the team will elaborate on this, but with the help of the best international legal team I could ever dream of, sitting with me here today, um, we submitted amicus, or friend of the court filings, to, to the ICC to ensure that Saif al-Islam had some sort of um, representation and say in the process while he was cut off from the world and denied legal representation in Libya. Naturally, we were rebuffed at every step of the way until finally invited to sub submit our observations which were deemed necessary to the proper determination of the admissibility of the case and which were instrumental, I would also add, to finding Libya unfit to try him. The resulting ruling was that the ICC would retain jurisdiction over the case of Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, but not the case of al-Sanusi, for instance. Um, in spite of uh, this being in spite of unheeded uh, demands to this date for his handover to The Hague. And throughout this lengthy process, I witnessed the collusion uh, between, West, between the West and Libya to keep, keep him deliberately out of The Hague, where we, he would have a platform to speak his piece, and where I've been told charges would likely be dropped for lack of a strong case by the prosecution. And in the media, it was portrayed as a sort of tug of war between the two camps, but I found that to be largely simplistic. And on to Libya and his ongoing detention by the Zintani militia there. So there's a lack of connection to the outside world, friends or family, or choice of legal representation, despite recent rumors, which we'll address. There was also a supposed tug of war 
between rival factions in Libya um, over custody of him who <coughs> was, which was being used as a pawn, who, oh, so um, Saif al Islam being used as a pawn in their internal power struggle. Um, our repeated attempts to make contact with him were thwarted, especially post what I call Melinda Gate, where Melinda Taylor uh, of the ICC attempted to go there to see him, um, re resulting in their detention, and which basically ensured that outside ob observers would no longer be permitted access from, from there on out. Uh, there was also a supposed tug of war between rival factions in Libya over uh, his custody. And um, I soon learned that the Zintanis actually took orders from higher authorities, such as the prosecutor general, um, who they explained to me would have to authorize any such contact. So the collusion also existed on the domestic level as well as the international. And there has been no proof of life since 2014. Uh, no more visits from the ICRC. Um, a sham domestic trial proceeded and a death sentencing was handed down in absentia in contravention of the ICC ruling. Um, this lack of due process compounded by domestic unrest, civil strife, the influx of ISIS, as Saif al had actually warned against in the event of a NATO intervention, and the, the situation being that nothing can be trusted or fully known in the black, black box situation that now prevails in Libya, uh, which is now a filled state. Um, most recently, there were damaging rumors and disinformation uh, swirling that he was walking free and had his death sentence dropped and um, enjoyed legal representation of his own choosing, and there's been no evidence of this. Moving on to the African court and the setting of a precedent, so this resulted in us making a successful appeal to the African Commission and Court over Libya's noncompliance. And this creative problem solving was inspired by the absence of direct means of gaining access to safe uh, Gaddafi and securing his rights. So we were, in a sense, awakening um, a dormant regional human rights mechanism to hold an African Union country accountable for the rights of a prisoner of war held incommunicado following regime change. And this is the first time a case like this has originated outside the African Commission, so it had to be nudged along. Um, the African court rulings we were able to bring about culminated in a default judgment earlier this summer, and it was a game changer in the ICC-Libya-NATO equation. Um, the default judgment and continued noncompliance could essentially trigger sanctions, and other penalties for Libya. It sends a message that impunity will no longer go unchecked, especially in an era that seeks to distance itself from its painful past, especially from the Gaddafi regime. Most recently, we've issued a call for an African Union delegation to visit him and to secure his person, even if, if possible. I've also proposed a compromise solution to hold his trial in a, in a third neutral African state as an alternative or as an interim step to a Hague handover. And the lesson here is that local justice is impossible in uh, law a lawless land, but that regional mechanisms can step in to guard against a victor's justice, um, as is what's happening in Libya, and a bully's justice by the West. It's a proud moment when fledgling institutions such as the African Court of Human Rights put politics aside and hand down decisions based solely on unchanging higher principles enshrined in their charters. I am supremely proud to witness firsthand the many, African, the many African judges rising to the occasion 
and committing their signatures and seals to legally binding documents. The wheels of justice may turn slowly, but they leave an indelible mark wherever they do turn. And further lessons learned uh, are that in the end, the main figure that emerges amid this saga is not Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, but Lady Justice, whose benevolence either extends to all or none. In the defense of the rights of a person who many would deem indefensible, I work to defend higher truths and principles, often, as I said, at great personal and professional cost, but with good reason and good results nonetheless. I hope this will serve uh, as inspiration to others to dare take up causes that may be unpopular or controversial, but serve a higher goal of shielding the system from selective application of principles and institutional manipulation and bias. This case highlights the importance of due process across the board for the rights to truth and justice for all. The goal, goal ultimately is to foster not just transitional justice from one crisis to the next, or for one privileged group at the expense of another, but lasting justice. Uh, universal rights, which are indivisible rights, I submit, are under threat when they're applied selectively. It is all well and good when we work to defend the underprivileged and the defenseless, but the net benefit of protecting the rights of those such as Gaddafi Jr., who became the locus of much hatred, and who are scapegoats for greater systemic ills, and who many would count as undeserving of legal protections, is to bust through the bottomless cycle of revenge and bloodletting, and to highlight and hopefully stem the patterns of injustice which persist from one regime to the other. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, as the saying goes, but Lady Justice wears blindfolds with good reason. I pass the baton now to the members of my formidable legal team, Sir Jeffrey Nice, QC, followed by Ide Dykstall and Aidan Ellis. I'm also very grateful to Rodney Dixon, QC, who is not present here today, but was also a star member of our team with great vision who made these legal precedents possible. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, if my delayed arrival delayed the start of your session, I can only apologize. As a journeyman barrister knocking around the country, the rule was always to take not the train that would get you there in time, but the train before that train. But that, of course, doesn't allow for the traffic in Oxford on a wet afternoon, or indeed the traffic in London. But I'm sorry if I was a bit late. I almost never am. Can you hear me at the back? If you can't, put your hand up. No point in coming if you can't hear me. Or them, come to that. Um, I'm going to try and set what Mishana has said, and repeat some of it, but not much, in a wider context. And I'm going to try and give it uh, something of a contemporary, very up-to-date um, colour. Let me start with something that is perhaps obvious, and that is that I and Rodney Dixon and Ide and Aidan, I, I speak for myself, but I suspect I speak for them as well, didn't know Saif Gaddafi, have absolutely no view on whether he did bad things or didn't, uh, have no particular loyalty to him as an individual, or indeed disloyalty. Because in this case, as in more or less all cases under the system that operates in this and many other countries, 
lawyers are engaged to bring their experience and their advice but on a neutral basis it's the client who may have a, a different approach the lawyers have to be neutral and objective and I hope and believe that we were and that applies in any case uh, it applies whether it's a murder or a rape or war crime or whatever but as um, Mishana has already indicated there is another element to this particular case that makes it a little bit different and that is because what we have been concerned with throughout the long process that uh, Mishana has uh, nobly pursued Throughout the long process, we've been focusing on a very limited objective to achieve for this man certain elementary human rights. I don't know how many of you are lawyers. All? None? Some? All lawyers. Some lawyers. Well, therefore probably most of you know, but if you don't, I'll just give you the two or three sentence summary human rights are regarded as different from other rights universal because in some way according to some people they attach to the very business of being a human being they're different from rights given by states I suppose if you were a God-fearing person you would say they were God-given if you don't fear God you would nevertheless dress them with some similar importance they attach to all humans and they must attach to them and even if you depart from that approach completely and say no they're just given by states or by international states or organizations nevertheless those organizations want us to treat them as universal in their application and attachment and as if God-given. And on the 50th anniversary of the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UN gave all its employees, which I was then, a little book, setting them out. Not very big, but it contains a list of those rights, which include the rights of every individual to due process at any trial and any public trial as it has to be and so it was that particular right that we were concerned with and by being concerned with it you are both concerned with it for that man Saif Gaddafi but also for the right itself and there is if these rights are as people believe them to be a duty to guarantee to do what you can to guarantee those rights for any individual whatever you might think of him whatever the world might think of him irrelevant because if you don't do what you can to accord to that individual these rights then you are denying the rights themselves and thus in part you are denying them for mankind
a little diversion or digression. I can't remember how many years ago, but it was after the start of Mishana's case. I was here in Oxford at a town hall gathering. I can't remember who it was and whether it was first-year students. I think it was undergraduates. I don't think it was um, school students, undergraduates. Packed, packed hall. And uh, for some reason, um, I was able to raise with the hall what it is you do if you want to preserve the right of someone. And we worked our way around it, no doubt, in an entirely devious and manipulative way, so that eventually someone identified, well, you write to your MP. That's what I wanted to raise with the audience. And I said, fine. And I referred to Saif Gaddafi, and I said, and how many of you would write to your MP to preserve or to seek to preserve the human rights of Saif Gaddafi? Memory plays tricks, doesn't it, when you want to make a point. But my recollection is that no one put their hand up. Showing at a very local and individual level that which Mishana had to deal with and has spoken of at an institutional level. Namely, that human rights when under the control of large organizations will be regarded as, what shall we say, navigable. You don't have to respect them. You can forget them. And so it was for that purpose that we pursued the slow, tortuous process, first with the International Criminal Court, then with the African Court, of which Ide and Aden will speak, and with, I suppose, sometimes even almost funny um, events along the way, although they're not really funny, when we were disrespected or disregarded at the International Criminal Court, because we didn't, of course, have such a thing as a power of attorney, so they sent their own person to go and see him. And indeed, whereas we've never been able to get to see him, this person did get there. And do you know what happened? Does anybody remember? I can't, of course, say that it's true, but it's never been denied that the woman lawyer must have been rather inexperienced, I think, representative of the ICC, took a pen in with a camera on the end of it, got arrested and detained for how long? Two months? Somebody moves. Mm. And so what was going on there in the preservation of his human rights? Well, something rather different, something rather um, more state-orientated, it would appear, than the mere business of trying to secure for this person access to an independent lawyer. And by the way, lawyers, however much they may be independent, dispassionate and professional, do not go into secure places where there are rules that you should obey carrying spies in the end of pens for a number of reasons, including that it is bound to do your client or pr prospective client a grave disservice. So that was our mission. And Mishana has summarized, and my two colleagues will amplify a little, and you can establish more through questions. We have had some progress and some success and it's all because of the willingness of one individual to commit herself to a 
task that many would say was thankless. Now let me try and set this in a slightly broader modern context. For the importance of what you are hearing about may be greater than even we thought, in a way. I don't wish to ask you how you voted in the Brexit referendum. And I don't really care. Uh, nor do I wish to ask those of you from America who you voted for in last night's uh, event. Although it might be more interesting to know, but never mind. But as to Brexit, forget how people voted. What went before Brexit and what has come since has shown that this country of ours is now being unmasked. It is not the greatest democracy on earth because no democracy could have organized such an event in quite such a calamitous way with the real risk of bringing disaster on the economy, the people, and changing the culture so that we no longer regard our neighbors as our friends. We now have to even doubt whether we have the best legal system in the world. I never thought we did. And certainly it's going to be rather tricky for Mrs. May or the editor of the Daily Express, the Daily Mail or the Sun to say as much when the leading judges of the land are vilified as enemies of the people. And this unmasking of the reality of the characteristics of we little islanders is something that is the setting for the future. It can be thought that the liberal consensus under which some of us lived more or less all our lives and which was a background against which our legal work could be done, work which sometimes benefited from radical lawyers in slightly tricky cases, but there was never that much of a need for radical lawyers because by and large the drift of society was a matter of consensus, the drift, the move of society. It's gone. It is all too possible now to imagine a right-wing government in this country where people will espouse strong right-wing views and in Europe as well as on the other side of the Atlantic. What does that mean for lawyers? Well, if it happens in any of those countries, it means two things. First, there will be no lack of biddable lawyers willing to serve an extreme government. There never has been, there never will be. They'll always be found, because lawyers are not essentially good people, they're just people. And of course, the majority of the people who sat round the Van Zay conference table determining the destruction by annihilation of the Jews were lawyers, many of them educated to the doctoral level. So if we find ourselves in a totally different culture, some lawyers will undoubtedly do and advance as lawful whatever is the requirement of the government concerned. 
I don't expect that people in this country will, being, will be being sent back because they are um, former European Union uh, migrant workers. I don't expect that will happen. I expect transitional arrangements will be made, but anything's possible. What that means is that if at any stage anyone wants to argue that this little book or the European Convention that followed it by a few years should guide our behavior because they are actually universal rights, then they will be operating in an even less welcoming culture than the one that has slowly been developing in this country as isolationism has taken its gentle toll uh, and will apparently soon be reflected by 10,000 people following Nigel Farage in the march on the law courts. And at that stage, lawyers, unlike me, I had the real easy time, didn't I? There was no such need for radical lawyers, not really in my day. A little bit of radical occasionally, a little bit of combat with the government, but nothing too serious. But it may well be that in time to come, it will be much, much harder to assert that this and associated texts are what society should follow, because the liberal consensus will be no consensus at all. And so what Mishana has done, and by chance, because she didn't know all this was going to happen when she started years ago, is that which others may well have to do in your lifetimes, which is to see a principle that needs to be preserved and that is being broken, and to throw herself or himself or themselves behind it. We'll now hear a little bit from Ida and then from Aidan about the precise things that happened in the ICC and the African Court, and then we'll be open to questions. Sure. I'm going to talk about the ICC. I, I'll make it somewhat short because I know we're a little bit short on time. time. Um, when Mishana approached us about uh, seeing what we could do for SAIF's rights, uh, we needed to figure out what we could do to contribute to the ICC proceedings. Uh, we were a bit of a, a different party. Uh, we weren't official parties to the court. We weren't part of the defense team or part of the government or even victims. So how we could contribute to the ICC pr proceedings in order to make sure that Saif's rights were guaranteed, we, we needed to figure that out. Um, the way, the mechanism that we participated at the ICC was through amicus proceedings. At the ICC, you can um, apply, you have to get leave from the judges, but make an application to contribute to the proceedings, and um, the judges can accept those if they find it desirable for the proper determination of the case. So that's where we, we came in. Um, the case for Saif at the ICC was also a bit different than normal cases. Uh, usually there's an arrest warrant and then an arrest is made and someone's transferred to the ICC and from there it's the uh, confirmation of charges hearings and a defense team is appointed by the court and you move on to trial. In 
the case of Saif at the ICC, it was completely different, and everything that was litigated um, had to do with the fact that um, whether his rights were going to be upheld and whether Libya would be uh, doing the trial in Libya or whether the ICC would be able to do it. So what the ICC at first was trying, is when the proceedings first started, they were trying to ascertain whether what Saif's status was. It was November of 2011 and he'd just been arrested and nobody knew where he was and whether he had a lawyer. And then later on, once Libya made their admissibility challenge, what the court sought to do was to determine <coughs> sorry, whether Libya was investigating or prosecuting Saif uh, for the same conduct that was part of the arrest warrant. Um, one thing at the ICC is they say that the, the state, it's part of the complementarity, uh, the state involved if they challenge the court and say we'd like to have the trial in our country and not at the ICC. They have to show first that they're uh, that they're investigating or prosecuting the same conduct. It doesn't have to be that they charge all of the same uh, crimes, but they have to show that the same conduct that the suspect did, the ICC has in their arrest warrant, is covered in their investigation. And they have to show sufficient evidence. It can't just be an assurance from the state to say, oh, sh you know, we're, we're doing it, we're doing it, don't worry about it. Um, and then the other thing that they need to show is that they're both able and willing to hold the proceedings in their country and that the ICC th can then release it to that country. Um, so to kind of back up a bit, what we did was we had five different times that we applied to be amicus um, participants in the proceedings. And on the fifth, fifth time, we were granted leave to make observations, but it was in different um, parts of the proceedings there. And um, so the first two, it was in January of 2012, and then April of 2012. Um, that was the time period when, <coughs> excuse me. Um, thanks. When it wasn't, um, we, we didn't know what was happening with Saif's right. And, rights and where he was and whether he had a lawyer. He was presumably in Zintan. Uh, and the court was also trying to figure that out. So what we applied to do was to uh, make submissions to the court about all the efforts that we had made during this time period. Um, some of it is up here and we'll have a copy of it over there afterwards. But in addition to just doing legal proceedings, we, we were doing a lot of of efforts of writing letters, making contact with people in Libya, with the UN, with the UN support mission in Libya, with ambassadors and embassies, and um, trying to, in any way possible, make contact with somebody in Zintan so that someone from our team could visit him and ask him who he wants to be his, his lawyer and make sure that that right was afforded to him, that he could also contact his family because as far as we were aware, he had no access to family or friends. So those were our two submissions in um, January and April. Uh, at, after that time, Libya made their admissibility challenge. So now the court was looking at, at the criteria that I explained before. Is, are there the same um, investigation over the same conduct and whether Libya was able and willing? And in that um, analysis by the court, I think we were very situated to help the court 
because showing all the efforts that we had gone through and been rebuffed by Libya by, um, in order to get access to him, that NGOs like uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and um, the Red Cross, we had communicated with all of them and they were trying to get access to Saif as well. And so what we then asked the court is, can we submit to you everything that we've done to show that their legal system in Libya is just not functioning and that they won't be able to afford safe a fair trial or investigate him properly for that matter. Um, and the court at that time as well didn't accept our observations, um, but we had provided a lot of the reasons within our leave, so we hope that they did, you know, that it did sink in as well. Um, the application that was accepted by the court when we asked for leave to submit observations came during the appeal phase. Um, so the pretrial chamber made its decision on admissibility and what they decided was that not only was Libya's investigation um, inadequate to cover what the ICC arrest warrant had, but also they were unable to conduct the investigation. And what the court said was that the national system cannot yet be applied in full in certain areas or aspects because of the revolution and the change in government and the change in the justice system. And the aspects that they said were concerning and led them to believe that they just are not able to try, say, for um, three different aspects. First, they, they didn't have custody, that the government that was based in Tripoli did not have custody over Saif when he was held in Zintan by a group that didn't communicate with the government. And therefore, you can't have, under Libyan law, you can't have in abstention trials. And um, the court is evaluating whether under their own laws and under their own judicial system, they can afford the laws that they provide to their citizens. And they said, you know, you can't have an in absentia trial from Zintan. So if you don't have custody of him, then he's not going to be present for his trial. The next was inability to obtain testimony and to protect witnesses, that it was just too volatile at that time. If you remember at that time, there was many reports of judges being threatened and lawyers being shot and witnesses being intimidated. And it just wasn't a system that would provide a fair trial for a defendant. And the third aspect was the appointment of a defense counsel. And the ICC had asked the government of Libya, the representatives, um, who were uh, conducting the proceedings for the government of Libya at the ICC, what the status of him being appointed an independent defense counsel of his choosing was. And they had for many, many months said, it's coming, it's coming, it's eminent. And finally, in the admissibility decision, uh, they said, you've assured us so many times and assurances are just not enough. It seems like there's no prospect that he'll be afforded uh, legal representation anytime soon. So those were the reasons why the admissibility challenge was rejected for Libya and the court said please transfer immediately Saif to the court so that the ICC can provide him with a fair trial. Um, as you know, uh, Libya never did that and they ended up conducting the trial there. But during the appeal of that decision, Libya said um, one of their grounds was of appeal was that they are willing and they are able to conduct the investigation. And so this is where, again, we came in with um, 
with the record of everything we've done to show that it's just not possible for them to even respond or to uh, to get somebody to be able to visit uh, Saif, to be able to call him on the phone or have his family speak to him. And these are fundamental rights that everybody should have during a trial that's part of due process. And we were able to submit that. And the other thing that we submitted during this observation as well, and Aidan's going to speak about this, um, was the provisional measures that were uh, implemented by the African Commission. And when um, they, uh, when the African Commission ordered these provisional measures for Saif's rights to be afforded, the, Libya was also ordered to uh, tell the African Commission how they had implemented that. And uh, the time expired and they, they didn't report back. So what we did is show this to the, court, to the ICC and saying even the African Commission thought that this was so urgent that they provided, uh, they ordered provisional measures and Libya hasn't been able to implement those. So the, the ground of appeal that they're unable uh, to try the case was no error by the pretrial chamber and that's how we were able to contribute to the ICC proceedings. So I'll pass it to Aidan. Um, I get uh, the pleasure of telling what I think is a success, uh, a success story, which is how we came to uh, a position where the African court gave uh, default judgment against Libya uh, in uh, our proceedings. Um, if, if I begin by cantering through the uh, history um, and then make some observations uh, informed by that. Um, the, the starting point is that, instructed by Mishana, um, we submitted a communication to the African Commission uh, in the first instance uh, back in March 2012, uh, at a point when uh, it was unclear if uh, Saif was even uh, still alive, um, and certainly when there were at least uh, very substantial concerns about the conditions of his detention. Uh, that resulted in the African Commission ordering interim measures requiring Libya to do various things, uh, afford him access to his friends and family and lawyers, for example. Uh, Libya did not respond, uh, and we were able to persuade the Commission to refer this case to the African Court of Human Rights, uh, Human and People's Rights, I should say. That was an important step uh, for us in this case, because the court is a more prestigious and powerful institution. Um, but it's also an important step historically in the African human rights regime, because I think I'm right in saying we were the first case that the commission referred to the court, uh, using what was uh, a relatively new power at that point. Um, the court itself imposed interim measures on Libya. Uh, Libya, on I think two occasions, sent note verbals to the court. Um, on one occasion, at least, it attached some documents that, that, that provided some evidence in the case. Uh, but it never made detailed legal submissions uh, to the African human rights organs, uh, in stark contrast to the uh, amount of money they must have spent uh, on the legal proceedings at the International Criminal Court, for instance. Uh, on, I think, at least five occasions, the African court referred uh, Libya's non-compliance to the Executive Council of the African Union, which is the political body which uh, then has the responsibility of putting more pressure on Libya uh, to do something about it. Uh, 
in, in the meantime, uh, Libya had continued with its national trial and imposed a death penalty on Saif, uh, imposed a death sentence on Saif, uh, and the court again imposed a second set of interim measures saying, stop it, you can't enforce this. Uh, finally, we were able to persuade the commission, which by then was the party to proceedings strictly, uh, to apply for default judgment. Uh, and the African court granted default judgment in June uh, of this year, uh, finding that Libya has and is violating Saif's rights. Uh, and perhaps that informs the first observation I should make, which is that it took more than four years from that initial communication to get to a default judgment. Uh, and that's perhaps a tribute to Mishana's persistence uh, that we got that far. There were times when I feared we, we might not make it. Um, I want to say three things in the time I've got which might provide a starting point for some debate. Um, the first is to speak about my optimism for the African human rights uh, mechanisms. Uh, the second is perhaps to express some of my frustrations with, with the process. Um, uh, and third, to say something about human rights and transitional justice, which uh, is, after all, the group that's kindly brought us here. Um, on the first point, I, I do believe that the African Charter on Human and People's Rights uh, has great potential. Uh, it's still perhaps untapped potential, but it's, it, it's there. And I do think it's going to be a force uh, in the future. Uh, perhaps I'm more optimistic than Sir Jeffrey about uh, the liberal consensus. I, I'm an optimist. You, 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 you mustn't hold that against me. But I haven't got time to sing all the praises of the African Charter. Uh, it's a much more modern charter of rights than, say, the European Convention. Uh, it goes so far as to protect rights to healthcare, uh, education, equal pay. Uh, it makes a unique contribution in protecting people's rights as well as human rights, uh, so that a specific minority group, for example, can assert their communal rights to sacred space, to cultural uh, needs, uh, and to natural resources. Uh, and I, I think that's potentially powerful. Um, but what specifically interested me in this case is that, of course, all human rights mechanisms have admissibility criteria which define what cases they can consider. Um, those are set out in Article 56 of the Charter, and a large number of them are quite familiar um, because they would, they would appear in most human rights instruments. Um, first of all, you have to exhaust local remedies, for example. No, no surprises there. Um, but what I think is important is that there is nothing in Article 56 to say you have to be the victim of a rights violation to bring a case. Um, that stands in contrast, of course, uh, to the European Convention, where you have to be a victim, and a victim, in a very rushed summary, is somebody actually or potentially directly or indirectly affected. Um, it stands in contrast to our own judicial review proceedings in public law in, in the UK, where you have to show you've got a sufficient interest. Under this regime, the African Charter, anyone can submit a communication if you're concerned that another person's rights are being violated. Uh, that allows NGOs, for example, to submit cases, which they can't do uh, before the European Court. Uh, 
it allows somebody like Mishana to take on a case like this one. Uh, it allowed us to say, we're not instructed by Saif. How can we be? He's in incommunicado detention. Uh, we are instructed by Dr. Mishana Hussein Yun. She is concerned that his rights are being violated. That, after all, is the most important issue here. Uh, and then the court and the commission can go on to deal with it. Uh, but that optimism for the process, which I, I, I do think is a powerful one, um, can't hide some frustration that it took us so long to get to the end result. Um, I think there are ways in which the African mechanisms could improve. Uh, I would like to see more transparency. Uh, it was difficult at times to find out, for example, if Libya had responded and what the contents of their responses were, um, which makes it a little difficult to apply for default judgment if you're not wholly sure uh, that they're completely in default. Uh, I would like to see more oral hearings uh, and more publicity attached to them on, 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 on the first case to be referred from the Commission to the Court. Uh, you might have thought there would be uh, an occasion for oral submissions which, which the Court could then publicise and draw uh, some attention to it. Um, at times the rules are quite inflexible. Um, the court doesn't sit permanently. It only has a certain number of ordinary sessions each year. If you want to get something on the agenda for an ordinary session, uh, you have to submit it for the agenda to the registrar a certain number of days in advance. Uh, and that's a little inconvenient if a state imposes a death sentence for partway through that time limit. Um, you end up having a conversation with the court where you're saying, look, this is urgent. You have to engage with this now. Leaving it to go on the agenda at the next ordinary session could be too late. Um, and I think when you're acting as lawyers, to some extent as activists and agitators in a case like this, uh, part of what we were doing was creating a written record uh, that you see in, in the chronology on behind me, um, in the documents on the table, uh, so that if the worst had happened, uh, there would have been a record of what the court was asked to do, what the commission were asked to do, uh, against which history could judge them. Uh, I don't want to be too harsh on the court or the commission. Um, these are relatively new institutions and relatively new procedures. Uh, this is one of, I think, still less than 30 cases that the African court has finally determined. Uh, whenever you set off down a new path, you, you don't expect the going to be wholly smooth. Y you hope to cut through the debris uh, and the undergrowth, not only for your own case, but so the cases that follow us uh, will find the way that much smoother. Uh, and I do think that one of the important things about this case is that it's given the Commission the chance to say, we're not just going to sit back when states ignore our interim measures, we will refer to the court. And it's given the court the chance to say, we, we're not sitting back either. We, we will pursue this all the way and grant default judgment if we have to. Uh, and so that, I think, is important uh, for the development of what I, what I hope. Uh, it may be a sleeping regime at the moment, but it, it doesn't need to be. It can be a powerful one. Uh, finally, uh, as to transitional justice, um, one of the key themes of Libya's submissions before the International Criminal Court was that, look, 
we're a state in chaos, we've still got internal conflict going on. You, you can't hold us to the same standards, or you shouldn't hold us to the same standards. Uh, and I wonder how that ought to translate into a human rights setting. Uh, there was a separate opinion in the default judgment uh, from the Algerian judge who said, look, this was a chance for the court to set out clearly what its approach was going to be to cases where uh, there is an issue of human rights, but there's also an ongoing conflict. Uh, uh, and the court, to some extent, ducked that. Um, had I been in the court as a judge, there were, I think, a couple of ways that I could have knocked that issue on the head quite quickly. Um, the first is that, unlike the European Convention, unlike the Arab Charter, unlike the ICCPR, there is no provision in the African Charter that I can see allowing a state to derogate from rights. The other conventions all say something like, in time of public emergency, uh, to the extent proportionate, states can derogate from rights, uh, certain rights. Um, the African Charter doesn't say that. Uh, since the other charters do, that must be a deliberate decision uh, intended to shut that issue off from consideration. Uh, and I think the court could have been stronger in saying it's just not an issue before us. Uh, second, where, for example, the European Convention allows states to derogate, uh, you have to do so in a formal way. Um, you can't turn around after the event and say, ah, uh, yes, that looks quite a strong case. We derogate, please. Um, Libya, of course, didn't file any formal derogation. And I think that could have kicked uh, this issue out of consideration again. The African court didn't do that. Um, in, in two short paragraphs, the majority said, uh, OK, we can see that some international instruments allow you to derogate from some rights. But nevertheless, it seems to us that the rights concerned in this case seem like the sort of rights that you didn't ought to be derogating from. Uh, and then it moved on. Uh, I wonder if, as lawyers, we're happy with those conclusions. Uh, are we content that states, in the first place, have any possibility of derogating from rights uh, in times of national crisis? Um, history might suggest it's at those moments when rights are most required to protect the individual. But second, if we are going to say states can derogate from some rights if, if they meet the criteria of a public emergency, which rights is it that you would say they can derogate from and which can't you derogate from? Uh, which of these fundamental human rights, which of these universal rights, are more fundamental than others? Um, Perhaps we can agree that the right to life uh, ought to be one at the top of the tree. Freedom from torture, probably also up there. How about the right to liberty? The right not to be arbitrarily detained? Sounds fundamental to me. Um, but I imagine if you ask the Ministry of Defense in the light of its recent experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan, they might say, well, actually, it's quite useful to us to be able to detain people when we're operating hostile ground, if we expect that they're spying for the enemy. Um, it might be difficult for us in a combat zone to adhere to the strict requirements of human rights law. We think we ought to be okay as long as we abide by humanitarian law. 
Would you allow the right to liberty to be one right that can be derogated from? Uh, with that question, I think I leave you. Uh, it's a privilege, Mishana, to have been involved in a case that brings so many issues to the fore.